Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay has shown progress since it began 30 years ago. The bay is cleaner than it was in the 1980s when Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and three other states in the District of Columbia undertook the massive job of reducing pollutants running into the bay. Even with the progress, though, results have been mixed. Some aspects of the cleanup have been successful, while others not as much. Goals and milestones were set with deadlines attached. Pennsylvania is about to enter into phase three of the bay cleanup after not meeting a few milestones previously. The state still puts out too much nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment, mostly from agriculture and urban runoff. We have a first on today's Smart Talk, three cabinet secretaries on the same show. Joining us, Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, Patrick McDonald, uh, Cindy Dunn, Secretary of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, and Russell Redding, Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture. Secretaries, welcome to the program. Hi, happy to be here. Part of Smart Talk history. I'm sure that uh, this is something that uh, you'll write in your diaries when you go home. But uh, this was on the bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can see that, Secretary. But uh, all we need is a few more cabinet secretaries, and you know, who knows? We could decide what's going on across the state. But instead, we'll uh, we'll kind of focus on the Chesapeake Bay. If you have a question or comment, give us a call one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two, or send an email to Smart Talk at WITF.org. The broad question, where does Pennsylvania stand right now with this part of the Chesapeake Bay cleanup? Sure, and and uh, I think you, you framed it well. We've made progress, and I think just to take one of those three, you know, we, we talked about nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment uh, reductions when we're talking about the bay. To look at nitrogen, uh, we had an 11 million pound reduction in the amount of nitrogen uh, entering the bay since we started the program. That's the good news. The bad news is between now and 2025, we have a 34 million pound reduction that we need to achieve. So while we've made progress, uh, we have a lot left to do. And that's uh, uh, one of the things that we are very focused on, the governor's very focused on, and, and the three of us are very focused on uh, how do we, how do we uh, climb the hill and, and get ourselves o- o- over the uh, 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 requirements. That sounds like a major challenge. Oh, it certainly is. It certainly is. But it's also an opportunity. You know, it's it's an opportunity. And we've been engaged as we've never been with our farm community, uh, with municipalities around stormwater, and, and, and with residents about things that they can do. Mm-hmm. So what have we done up until now? And, and Secretary Dunn, let me have you answer this question. What has Pennsylvania done up until now? Well, we've been part of the Chesapeake Bay Initiative uh, since 1983 when uh, Governor Thornburg signed the Bay Agreement. And since then, there's been a, a number of Bay Agreements. And over, over time, uh, Pennsylvania's agricultural community, Pennsylvania's municipal community, Pennsylvania's stormwater uh, reductions and the, um, the, storm, and the uh, sewage treatment plants have all been party to this. DCNR has come in uh, to the effort on, a, on three fronts. Number one... We have launched a forested riparian buffer, a streamside buffer program, and, and simply stated, uh, trees planted by streamsides reduce all three pollutants that Secretary McDonald talked about: nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. So there's no there's no stream in Pennsylvania that wouldn't benefit from a streamside forested buffer. Uh, secondly, we work to engage people in their local waterways. An important part of the Bay effort in Pennsylvania has been from the beginning engaging Pennsylvania citizens in cleaning up the water. And like last night's storm was a good a good example. I was outside uh, during uh, the rain event. I could just see how the water flowed over my own property and the uh, erosion happening in a big storm event. That's how these pollutants get down to Chesapeake Bay. So that's why, as uh, Secretary McDonald mentioned, like Pennsylvania citizens need to be directly involved, from corpus campuses to municipal parks to backyards to farms. 
Um, so we're involved in, in that and in helping educate people on what they can do. And then thirdly, uh, we engage with people in the local waterways to get them out there and enjoying the local waterways. We run, we fund Sojourns River uh, events. In fact, I was out uh, with a group of 60 high school students on the Susquehanna. And uh, that's one of the things that really gives me some hope. Uh, today's youth are really educated and um, willing to make the investment and care about their local streams and that waterways. That was my question, though. What does it have to do with the bay cleanup? Is it that if people get outside and enjoy the waterways, that they're more likely to help in the cleanup? Absolutely. They're more educated about the value of their own local waterway, more motivated, frankly, uh, to clean up a backyard stream or a stream in their neighborhood. I say like our local Connor de Gwinnett, um, then they, um, they might be something far away like Chesapeake Bay. So if they understand, you know, that, that the actions on land will clean up the stream they care about, um, they'll be much more inclined to get involved, whether it's planting trees, whether it's helping with stormwater projects, whether it's supporting good policy at the municipal and state and uh, federal level. And, uh, you know, I've seen, I've been paddling the local waterways in the in lower Susquehanna. I see Amish people out uh, on Sundays enjoying the lower Susquehanna, swimming in the river. If they understand that actions on the farm help clean up their own river, that's going to matter a lot more than uh, Chesapeake Bay, which seems far away to a lot of people. How do you know they're Amish if they're swimming? Uh, they swim. In well, I'm sure they do. Well, I just wondered if the Amish had different swimsuits. They or, do. Oh, do they? Okay. And actually, it, it, just, that's a whole new show there. That's you know. a whole new show, and, and they do it quite well. Secretary Redding, as yeah. Secretary of Agriculture, Pennsylvania. I won't say we're in a unique position, but we have some issues that the other states don't have, in that the Susquehanna River runs into the Chesapeake Bay. There are more than 30,000 farms mm-hmm. in the Chesapeake Water Bay watershed. And, you know, as we heard, we're behind in nutrients, nitrogen, that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of this has to do with farm runoffs. Pennsylvania farmers have done a lot. In fact, you know, I hear from the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau from time to time say, we're not getting credit for all the things we've done. But there still is much more to do. How do we do that? Yeah, so there, there uh, in lies the central question, right? And I think one of the, the distinguishing pieces between the, the previous phases, one and two, and this one is that I think we've learned a lot in 30 years. Uh, and, and sometimes we make this more complicated than it really has to be. At the end of the day, it is about having every farm and acre uh, apply the best practices, and we know what works uh, in, in uh, the state. Uh, uh, we have a concentration of agriculture uh, in, in the state that also requires a concentration of effort. And I think what you'll see in this next uh, WIP3 is really a focus on uh, the priority practices, looking at priority watersheds, and looking at priority farms. And we're going to ask every farm uh, and farmer to, to apply those uh, best practices. It's interesting, when you look at Pennsylvania, you know, we have uh, more farms in the county of Lancaster than the state of Delaware, just for concentration, Mm. right? We have, uh, by every metric, in terms of livestock and nutrient produced, there's a concentration in the Susquehanna Valley, particularly uh, where you have the Susquehanna River runs through the heartland of Pennsylvania. So it is a major conduit, and I think talking about that, making sure that folks are aware uh, of their efforts and that contribution. Uh, but to your point, it's also important to note where we've had accomplishments. And for, uh, for us in the department, I think making sure that those who have done uh, a great job on the conservation side are acknowledged. Uh, we also focus in on the farms that have got a plan but need to do some additional effort. And, and the third group where we really have had difficulty getting them to engage. There are some unique circumstances, though, with farmers. Yes. Um, I mean, it's not like going to a municipality that uh, can, you know, retrofit or do something new with a wastewater treatment plant. I mean, they have taxpayers to do that. Farmers don't. Farmers, uh, many, many farmers across the state and across the country have uh, really tight budgets that they're not making a whole lot of money. This is their livelihood. They're not making a whole lot of money. And when you come in and say, okay, we need you to add this, pay for this, that may cost thousands of dollars. That's a real problem. Yeah, and it has been a problem. It has been a problem. It's part of the challenge. But there's, uh, when you look at the solutions, I mean, some of them, quite frankly, are not expensive, right? It is about the economics of conservation. And if you have a cover crop on during the winter, uh, as an example, that is a low-cost practice. 
that has huge benefits. You know, putting a, a buffer, as Secretary Dunn has noted, uh, on land, grass buffer, forested buffer, low cost, amazingly impactful. Uh, there are structural changes, though, that you have to invest in, and that's where we bumped into some of the challenges. So, manure pits, what else? Yeah, I mean, some of the yeah, manure pits and, and you know, the manure holding components, right. and, but, but that's not usually just a standalone effort, right? It's about a con, you know, construction of a larger building and production systems and uh, additional equipment to handle that. But we're going to try to focus in on you know, those efforts that uh, are universal to agriculture. That's the tilling of soil. It's the management of nutrients and get everybody to do that. If you just do that piece, that's the lesson of the last 30 years. Just do that. And then let us worry about you know, the more expensive and focus it, right, in priority watersheds where we know today by water monitoring that there's actually a challenge. But what I was getting at ultimately with that line of questioning is that money is a real challenge. And just uh, a few months ago, the Trump administration uh, had, in, in the first budget that was proposed uh, by the president, had cut out the Chesapeake Bay cleanup program. Uh, I mean, the whole thing, no no dollars. Now, Congress restored it, but money is something to be concerned about for not just the state, but these farmers who need some help in paying for some of these things. Uh, This is an economic question, right? I mean, it's it's sort of co-equal goals, and when we talk about it, it really is about clean water, but it's also viable farms. And you don't get the first without the second. Uh, there's no way to do it, right? Because we have to sort of find that equilibrium between sort of the natural resources and and, and uh, the economic enterprise. But uh, believe strongly, we can do it. Uh, the last 30 years have taught us a lot of lessons. It's important that the partnership of the voluntary practices on the farm with the state investment, but also, as noted, uh, the federal budget has been absolutely critical. Not just for the Chesapeake Bay program. There's another piece called the Farm Bill, and that's right. another conversation. But the, the funding to do the on-farm conservation work has come not from the Chesapeake Bay program solely. It's come from uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture conservation programs. And that's part of our concern with the president uh, proposing uh, a 31 percent cut in, in the USDA mm. budget. Secretary McDonald, let's talk about a letter that came from uh, the Environmental Protection Agency last month. It said that Pennsylvania has serious deficits when it comes to controlling nitrogen from farm fields and stormwater from developed areas. Uh, mentioned that farmers have done a lot. We know that uh, uh, money is, is an issue. Uh, the EPA, something that Secretary Redding mentioned, one of the things that, I don't know whether they suggested or said this is what you must do, but identify priority spots in the watershed, the Chesapeake Bay watershed, to be cleaned up. Talk about that a little bit. Certainly. Uh, and, and and really, it's uh, two things. I mean, I think the, the way we have engaged here is around partnerships and then those priorities. On the partnership side, and some of this, I, I joke, uh, you know, about I see uh, Russ Redding more these days than I see my wife uh, as we deal with Chesapeake Bay issues. Well, he's, he's, he's not only dressed, too. So. He, he is always. I try, <laughs> to, yes, I try to convince him to dress down a little bit at some events. but uh, I'm sure he's there. not wearing that tie in the field. Yeah. Uh, but the... the the reality is, you know, I've learned a lot uh, in the same way he's learned a lot about water quality. I've learned a lot about soil health, uh, uh, animal health. And so some of this economic question, when we're talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, sediment running off the field, what we're talking about is fertilizer, manure, good soils on those fields that are ending up in the stream, which isn't the goal of the farm. So some of what we're talking about in terms of the money being paid is investment uh, for the farmer. And and we've had a lot of success in in convincing folks on no-till and some things like that. Uh, In terms of EPA, they've they've set out some clear expectations. uh, And and we've been working over the last year to meet those, you know, implementing the the governor's restoration strategy. uh, and, And one of those that I would highlight in particular is we've worked with our conservation districts to start conducting more inspections uh, at the farms. We've done uh, over 1,100 inspections since October of last year working with uh, uh, those conservation districts. We've seen 60% of the farms have the plans uh, that they're supposed to have, 40% don't. The reaction to that isn't enforcement, though. The reaction to that is how do we get them their help? So we've 
uh, started developing some plans and programs so we can get some resources in to get that plan development and tell the story about how do you manage these resources in, in an appropriate way that is both helpful for the farm but ultimately helpful for our local waterways and then the Chesapeake Bay. We're going to talk more about that EPA letter in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about, or eventually we will be talking about, uh, the state's plans for Phase 3 of the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. We have three cabinet secretaries on our program today. Russell Redding, Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture. Cindy Dunn, Secretary of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. And Patrick McDonald, Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Secretary McDonald, we were talking about that letter last month from EPA. Uh, It said that if the state doesn't show enough progress, that no later than 2019, the agency will consider taking further actions. Those could include forcing wastewater treatment plants to install costly additional nutrient controls beyond what's already required or setting nutrient limits for stormwater discharges and concentrated animal feeding operations. Now, that sounds like a lot, but what I took of that, and you tell me if this is accurate or not, is that what they're saying is if we don't, we, meaning Pennsylvania, don't control what's going into the bay from farms, that that will be switched over to wastewater treatment, and that will cost more money. Correct. And and one of the things I think, frankly, all of the Bay States have been up against is how we deal with what we call these non-point sources. You know, the point sources being the wastewater treatment plants is an example where you have a pipe you can control. The non-point being what's coming off of uh, fields, uh, farms, grasses uh, across the Bay watershed. So the thing that we have the, uh, the more obvious regulatory hooks into are these point sources, and that's tended to be where the effort has been. Uh, part of the the issue there... Uh, for us, frankly, is on the wastewater side, for the most part, uh, through the H2O program that passed a number of years ago and some other things, uh, a lot of those wastewater treatment plants have already done a lot of upgrades and ratepayers are, are, are uh, paying for those today. So we want to, you know, we're working to, uh, one, as we develop this, this uh, phase three initiative, work bottom up. What can people do? What can we do within the farm community? What can we do within uh, municipalities on the stormwater side? What's left on the wastewater side? But there's also uh, broad recognition about how much each of those segments can do in order to get us there. So, again, I just want to, and I don't want this to sound like an alarmist or anything, but if that were to come to fruition where we would have to do more with wastewater, there's a potential there for taxpayers having to put out more, correct? Correct. Yeah, it would be the ratepayers at the wastewater treatment plants. If we had additional uh, controls that needed to be installed there, that would, you know, nothing's free. Okay. Scott, I would add, though, I mean, I think one of the differences between the first two phases and this one is to get away from only talking about the solution in one dimension. Right, it's not about a particular sector. Yeah, and I, the letter is very clear that if there's not sort of, you know, uh, reductions in the ag side, it falls to you know, municipal systems. The answer is found somewhere between all of those sectors. Right? Uh, how do you get to the reductions? And we've made huge public investments in the, you know, the the, the municipal systems. Uh, we have to have a commensurating you know, investment in in the agricultural side. But I think our conversations among the cabinet have been the solution is is also multidimensional. It's it's multi-sector. Mm-hmm. And I hope that at the end of the day, we, we don't focus in on just one piece, right, mm-hmm. as, as the letter sort of indicates has been the practice. Uh, if we do, I don't know whether we get to the, the reductions we're going to need mm-hmm. long term. That letter also said that Pennsylvania must engage local officials more. What does that mean? Well, we had a, uh, especially as part of the phase three process, we're working, uh, I'd say, down two paths. One is directly with some municipalities on stormwater. 
So we have a new stormwater permit that, that uh, the draft permits are due later this year from, from uh, a number of communities within the Bay and, and beyond the Bay watershed. And I was just up this week, uh, Wyoming Valley Sanitary Authority, working with uh, over 30 municipalities combined together to identify what are the most cost-effective ways of dealing with their stormwater issues there. So we've been engaged on that level. On the other, we in, in this uh, watershed implementation plan, uh, phase three, which, which we call WIP, WIP three, uh, we've, we had a kickoff meeting and had municipalities there, had environmental groups there, had uh, uh, all of the stakeholders there, over 240 uh, people participating, and I'd say one of the interesting things about that day was we nobody at this table set the agenda for how we deal with this. We let the participants in that room set the agenda and then lead the discussions about how we do this. So we're definitely committed to engagement with municipalities, but engagement with all of the stakeholders to see who can bring what to the table. One of the things I tell our folks is, I'm not interested in what people can't do. Um, I'm interested in what we can do and how we how we address this. Right, before we take some phone calls, let me just uh, ask about phase three. In each of your areas, what does phase three look like for DEP? Sure. So phase three for us is uh, how do we get to 2025 and this 34 million pound reduction in nitrogen, as an example. Uh, we ultimately have the regulatory responsibility for putting forward a plan that shows we're going to get there. So for me, I think one... I think the prioritization, the partnerships, the recognition of things that were already going on, for example, within the agricultural arena that pay, weren't getting credit in the past, that we're, we have processes now to get credit for, all play into that. That said, I don't know, you know, I think we're going to be a lot better off. I think we'll probably also need some additional resources to, to bring us over the hill to, to the 34 million pound reduction. Money and people? Money and people. Do you have enough people? Uh, not to, I, I don't think we'd have enough to get us over uh, to 2025, but that's going to be a discussion with the legislature. And one of the things we need to see through this phase three process is how far do we get? Why would you need more people? Uh, we need more more people to do uh, inspections, implementation of BMPs, uh, particularly in the conservation districts, getting more uh, uh, expertise out there in terms of plan development uh, and BMP implementation. I think that's going to be uh, an ongoing challenge. The the challenge with Nonpoint is always, it's not, as I say, it's not one pipe you control, it's, it's an entire landscape. So... Uh, it's not something that y you knock off in a bunch of one-offs. Mm -hmm. Secretary yeah. Redding, what about agriculture in phase three? Yeah, I think, uh, well, we're focused on 2025. I mean, the real, the real question is, what, what, what does it look like in 2050? Right? This is not about the next nine years uh, and making sure we meet a goal. It's about whether we have an agricultural you know, community here that's vibrant and diverse and, and adds to the quality of life and all those things that we enjoy from the food system as well as tourism and so forth. So really important to get the narrative right. And the narrative is in two parts. One is uh, the acknowledgement of what's been done and, and the economic uh, importance of, of agriculture, but it's also uh, setting forth an expectation that if you're in the business of agriculture and tilling the land, that you're doing the right things. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's part of our work. It'll take money. It'll take conservation districts. You have to get the plans on the ground. But it's also a third part, and that is around the technology and using the technology that uh, has been developed both in the plant science but also you know, in the, in the energy development area. So that's going to be a real key part uh, for us. Mm -hmm. Secretary Dunn? I would echo what Secretary Redding said, and that is not just what happens by 2025, it's what happens by 2050 and beyond. So everything that happens on land affects water. So our new forested riparian buffer program, our new streamside buffer program, uh, is designed to make wholesale changes in the way we look at the way we treat our streamsides in Pennsylvania. It's a new state program designed uh, around the new model, it's more flexible, and it allows income-producing plantings in that buffer. So a landowner can uh, plant things that they can actually produce income from. So instead of uh, perhaps a farmer seeing that as land that's not productive, it could be productive land. And so we're hoping for a, a massive change in the way people relate to their land. And that could be true of corporate campuses, uh, parks, streamsides, uh, homeowners, et cetera. Uh, we have an urban program that's very helpful, and we uh, I was gratified at the WIP3 meeting to hear a lot of people coming in with good ideas for the urban programs. 
the city of Lancaster, city of Harrisburg are coming full with uh, amazing new innovations on green infrastructure. Our grant program at DCNR is not considered Chesapeake Bay money, but we can actually help support green infrastructure and parks, and, and PennDOT can support green streets. So we have a lot of um, state programs that can be put to bear on the issue of urban stormwater. In fact, um, urban trees, you know, a, t a tree planted in the city actually counts on the Bay model. So uh, our urban tree planting program what can be, we call it tree vitalized, can be an important component. So there's no uh, part of the Pennsylvania landscape that can't participate. You know, the, we haven't really talked about the urban uh, part of this, but uh, let's face it, there is building, there is development going on across the state all the time. Right. And uh, that means more roads, that means more buildings, water hits those things and runs off. You know, how can we, our developers, have they signed on to this for one thing? Is it, do they know this is something that has to be done? We see we meet developers who do, but if you look around, uh, obviously there are many who don't. So I think that's an important component of this. Uh, any time the, the land is disturbed with new impervious surface, that needs to be you know, mitigated or made up for by better absorption somewhere else. I mean, just looking at the campus around here and the big stormwater basin down by the uh, commercial development down below here, you can see that the development around here has led to way more stormwater. So more more trees, more green infrastructure, upstream really helps a lot with that, helps it infiltrate into the ground and, and prevent mm -hmm. the pollution. And, and I would just add, uh, you know, we've spent a hundred years developing but having a message of how how much and how fast can we get that stormwater away from, from property. And uh, what we've done with the new permit and, and the, the program changes that we've made is uh, change the conversation of how do we manage stormwater as a resource? How do we infiltrate? How do we keep it here and not simply shuttle it off to the nearest uh, stream. Mm -hmm. Let's take a phone call from Gary in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Secretary Redding, I heard farming and I heard tourism, so we're part of the Farm Vacation Association. We have asked all our members to either voluntarily have the Conservation District come out or NRCS and see what programs are available. And if it's a riparian buffer and they say 30 feet, we're asking people to go 50 feet. If they say 50 feet, we're asking them to go 75. We've put in so many practices that we've never gotten a penny for, I call it Donkey Lake. And, you know, it was probably $1,000 to take this field runoff from an upper pasture and put it down into a retention area and then a 10-foot standpipe with all this grass around it so that when the water comes down, it's filtered. When it finally does rise up and go out the standpipe, it's about as clear as we can possibly make it. And we didn't get a penny for that. I'm just saying there are bad hombres in farming, but I can tell you there's a lot of farms out there that have done things that have never gotten a penny for, and I'm not sure that they've ever been accurately reported. So, And I just real quick, I will tell you that being from Delaware County, whenever it rains down there, and you ask Delcora, whatever it is, the treatment plant down there, what happens after a severe rainstorm and how much of that water comes out of the you know, standing water pipes and goes into the septic pipes, and it's amazing. But thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. Secretary? Yeah, Gary, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, I mean, a, a couple of points. One, the uh, on getting credit, I mean, one, one of the points that, that the governor and, and, and Secretary McDonald and I have spent a lot of time talking about is how do you acknowledge sort of what's being done on a voluntary basis and what we have historically been programmed to think about are only those uh, you know, practices or, or, or uh, the successes where you've had public investment. The reality is there's a four-to-one uh, ratio to those are voluntary practices versus things that public has paid for. So acknowledging that and capturing that, uh, we took the first step with a survey with Penn State University, which is really revealing and I think will be a key. Again, it distinguishes the first two phases from the third. Uh, and and uh, two, uh, your point about you know some of those practices I was trying to explain earlier that they're they're low cost but incredibly effective, right? And and getting that sort of adopted within the agricultural community I think is part of how we meet the goal, but it's also uh, you know get, getting you know the the practices that folks really know what to do and how to do them without a lot of engineering without a lot of costs uh, on the ground is going to be key. Secretary McDonald, I know you have to run. So, uh, and we're going to be for just another five minutes or so, sure. but I uh, want to thank you very much for being part of our triumphant of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, of our cabinet secretaries. No, it was a pleasure. And if, if I can add one last thing to what, what uh, Secretary Redding just said, um, I think there's been a lot of focus in the Bay program on the Bay model, and it's an important tool for us to, to 
understand what's going on within the Bay. That said, there's a lot of things we don't capture. And I've told our folks, we need to be about the things that are effective to reduce nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. And if it's not in the model, we'll let the model We'll let the model chase us. We're not going to chase things just because that's what the model takes credit for. So I, I tell everybody, if you're not getting model credit, you're getting PA credit uh, in terms of the work that's being done out there. Can I ask you one final question before you leave? Absolutely. Okay. And you can answer this quickly. Uh, Conowingo Dam in northern Maryland. Yep. Susquehanna River runs into the Conowingo. There was recently a report from EPA that sediment that they thought the, the Conowingo would stop, would fill uh would go until I guess it was 2030, and it's at 95% percent um, capacity at this time. How much of a concern is that? Well, I think it's it's something that is going to get evaluated as we do the midpoint assessment uh, here over the next uh, uh, several months. We're waiting to see exactly what those final numbers look like, uh, and and frankly, how then they get allocated. So. Uh, EPA and the Bay Program are working together right now to look at exactly what the impacts of the fact that uh, the Conowingo Dam has, has reached uh, equilibrium er- earlier than was thought and, and has lost that sediment uh, trapping capacity. Uh, and we'll just see where we go from there. DEP Secretary Patrick McDonald, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. And I have a couple other uh, emails here I wanted to get the other two uh, secretaries to uh, respond to. Christine says, I'm a farmer small farmer who recently moved from Frederick, Maryland to Littlestown in, here in Pennsylvania. In order to protect the bay, Maryland overburdens the farmer with paperwork, yearly nutrient management plans, crop cover plants, etc. It was crazy. Smart, smart fa- small farms had too much paperwork as larger farms did. It became a burden. This is any farm that had livestock over five animals or over $2,500 a year through ag. Is that the future here in Pennsylvania? Well, it, it's an interesting question, right? Because we, we've really, at the end of the day, if you look at Pennsylvania law, uh, it, it says if you're doing certain practices in terms of tilling and conservation or you have certain animals and producing manure, there are going to be requirements. Now, uh, the difference, though, I think between Pennsylvania and, and Maryland, one significant is that Maryland would require, you know, the annual submissions of, uh, of, of a lot of these paperwork paper, right? And that's sort of the burden. What we say is you need to have the plan uh, and the appropriate plan. Some of those are simply retained on farm, right? But I would just say that uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to sort of navigate you know, how do you find that balance, right, between you know, doing the plans and the accountability, which the WIP3 is requiring, and the practices that are on the ground. If there's a lot of paperwork, that does, does that discourage farmers for, from participating or being as enthusiastic to uh, participate? Well, I think there, for, for some, it, it certainly is a, a deterrent. I mean, I, I've tried, this is part of the narrative conversation, is to say, you know, we have farm management plans, I have crop plans, I have, you know, all kinds of herd health plans and production plans. Conservation plans has to be part of the planning effort. It's part of the economics of agriculture. So it, it's not a burden. Uh, it could be a burden. I mean, I think it's actually part of, uh, part of uh, good planning. Uh, but we're hopeful that, that the farm community would see if we start to give credit to those who are doing good work and acknowledge the good work and their investments. And we, as Secretary McDonald noted, you know, capture that for reporting purposes, that there's credit, that the credit becomes, you know, you see the value in it both in terms of the economics but also for what it's doing to, to your farm. So I think that's that's all part of this conversation and, and turning this away from I'm being asked to do something, I have to do something, to I want to do it because it's good for my farm and my community. We'll take one more uh, email. Blaine in Delta says, I'm so tired of hearing people saying something that will cost too much. I do not want to go back to the days of my childhood. Rivers catching fire, love canal. We claim to be a Christian nation. Let's be true trustees of the planet and treat it and other people like we love it. Secretary Dunn, I don't know if you want to respond to that or not. Well, that's exactly uh, what we're looking for, people to take stewardship and responsibility for that uh, which they own. And that's true uh, whether you're a homeowner, whether you're a farmer, uh, whether you are a CEO of a corporate campus. If we all look at uh, that that's entrusted to us and take care of it using the tools available, and that's where we in government feel we can help. Um, you know, the, the governor's committed to this and has committed to three agencies to help. Um, take advantage of assistance you can get, uh, programs that are out there, education that's out there, and, uh, and do your piece. I think that's the main message today is uh, this is a big issue, and uh, it's going to take 
everyone lifting their piece of it. And so I would, you know, I would concur with that. I think if everyone had that stewardship uh, approach, um, that would go a long way. And understandably, some uh, some landlords are going to need some help, and that's why we're here. Uh, one final question. Uh, I know that there was a public comment period up until July 7th. Uh, I guess two questions here. Where can the public get a look at your phase three plans, and will they still have the opportunity to comment on the on the plans? Yeah, so I, I think uh, on the first point, just where where can they see it? Uh, uh, you know, the the website, um, and, and I don't have the the, the pa.gov, but you know, if you look at DEP and or look at the Department of Agriculture, DCNR, any of the websites will have sort of the the, the plan. Uh, and secondly, they they can continue to comment and encourage to do so. Right, we, we're in the phase, and and there's a timeline here. But at the end of the day, it's about you know getting some good input and, and feedback. There's a work group that's part of the WIP three that we're in different sectors, I mean, stormwater and agriculture and finance. So please, anybody who has comments, uh, send them forth. I want to thank uh, both secretaries and Secretary McDonald for uh, being with us today. Cindy Dunn, Secretary of the Department of Conservation, Natural Resources, and Russell Redding, Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture. Thank you very much for being with us today. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The next Smart Talk road trip is to Pennsylvania State Capitol, where we'll have a discussion with Governor Tom Wolf. If you'd like to attend the broadcast or have a broad or have a question for the governor, RSVP and submit questions online at witf.org/events. Kevin McQuarrie is an award-winning journalist who focuses mainly on issues related to education for Keystone Crossroads, a collaborative effort to report on Pennsylvania cities by the state's public media that includes WITF and. WHYY in Philadelphia, where Kevin calls home. Kevin's appeared on Smart Talk several times, always with a well-researched and thorough story. Now Kevin McQuarrie is producing a new podcast called Schooled. The stories it tells are from the perspective of teachers, students, and parents. Kevin McQuarrie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Kevin, I'm going to get into the specifics of the first three parts, uh, the first three parts of, uh, of Schooled in, in just a moment, some of the specifics. But what was the idea behind the podcast? So the idea, as you mentioned, Scott, I write so often about policy and politics, you know, in kind of minute detail, every turn of the wheel, what's happening in, in the debate, what's happening in, in policy updates, all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to tell stories that kind of got beneath those issues to the people who were really being affected by them in hopes that, you know, through telling a story of a student or of a teacher or a parent, you would be illuminated in, in you know, caring maybe more about those policy and political issues. So that was the idea. Well, this first um, podcast, if you will, as I said, there's three parts uh, to the series. It focuses on education, uh, at least in these first three segments, but it's about more than just education, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. I mean, it's it's about a student in Philadelphia who has known immense trauma, who lives in deep poverty, who is a, who is a teen mom. She's currently 20 years old with a five-year-old daughter. She just graduated high school. And the podcast, you know, is, is really her, the first three episodes are really her life story, specifically her struggle uh, to make it to finish high school. And, uh, you know, just seeing the world through her eyes, I think, allows you to understand, um, you know, just the issues that plague some of our most challenged schools, right? This is a kid in North Philadelphia, a very uh, impoverished neighborhood in Philadelphia, but it could be a kid in Reading, it could be a kid in Newark, it could be a kid in many places in Pennsylvania, you know, rural parts as well, obviously, face trauma and, and have students, you know, facing trauma and living in poverty. And it's just, what 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 is our school system doing to uh, help those kids make it to the next level? Are they equipped to do that? Where do they succeed? Where do they, you know, falter? And, uh, you know, when you see the story through a student's eyes, uh, I think it just, you know, shifts your perspective in a in a, an important way that maybe, you know, the conversation that we often hear just out of Harrisburg or out of our local school board doesn't get to. We often play clips from 
you know, sound bites from uh, politicians or people in the news. This is a podcast, though, and I wanted to present a little bit more of uh, Kevin's uh, podcast, Schooled, than what you normally would hear in the program. Kevin, I'm going to set this up by just saying this is the very beginning of Schooled, where you uh, introduce us to uh, Savannah. Savannah Zayas is the is the 20-year-old that uh, Kevin was referring to. Let's listen to that right now. It's early February, and Savannah Zayas is just four months away from proving the world wrong. I, I tell myself every morning, Savannah, your life is going to be different. You're going to have a good life. When she became pregnant in middle school at age 14, the odds of her making it to and finishing high school were long, especially so coming from a poverty-stricken neighborhood in North Philadelphia, and many people let her know it. I was really ashamed when I was pregnant. I was ashamed and I was, like, disappointed because people used to always, like, tell me, like, you're crazy, like, you're a baby and you're having a baby, like, you're in middle school. So far, six years later, Savannah has exceeded expectations. She's a senior at North Philly's Edison High School, where she's a member of the National Honor Society. After school, she works with younger kids from the community at a local nonprofit. And on top of being a mother, she helps run the household for her own mom and her two younger siblings. And while she often carries her burdens with grace, they can also overwhelm her. Her day-to-day life is a struggle. Her past is a cross to bear. And sometimes, like here in February, she feels on the verge of giving up. I feel like I'm running down the hallway and I never, I'm never going to reach the door. Like That's kind of how I feel. Kevin, I think that really sets the stage for uh, Savannah's story. How did you find Savannah? I I attended a kind of informal Philadelphia City Council hearing that one of the councilwomen had organized to talk about issues of uh, staffing in Philadelphia schools. And, you know, there's high turnover always in in the Philadelphia school district. It's it's hard to attract and retain great educators to uh, schools that have really deep needs and that you can argue are under-resourced. So anyway, uh, there was a particularly bad experience last year, 2015-16 school year, where the school district had outsourced its um, staffing service contract to an untested private firm. And it was really a disaster for a lot of city schools where they just weren't finding people to uh, fill vacancies. The daily substitute rate was atrocious, and it really affected Savannah School, Edison High School. So uh, it affected her in that her te- one of her favorite teachers left in the middle of the year, and then they just couldn't find a replacement. And you know they had they just had nobody in her classes uh, for for far too many days, and many people at the school kind of attest that it, it was just a, a waste of academic time. Kids are wandering the halls, and Savannah just really got fed up with it, and she started advocating. And she ended up speaking at this um, at this city council hearing, and I was just struck by how thoughtful and mature she was and how ab- how able she was to you know give voice to to these issues that that affect her so often i talk to students who you know they're teenagers or, or younger and you know they've got really compelling stories and they're interesting people but they can't put words to uh, their experience savannah is just really unique in that she she can she can do that she's just re- a, an amazing sharer and so i was just so struck by her and said okay let's let's talk again and then when we talk the next time and, and i start to understand more of her backstory, more of what she's been through. Uh, She just continued to blow me away with her resilience. And I I said to myself, you know, this is a person whose story I really need to take time to tell. This is a story that's important for people to hear. Well, that backstory is, first of all, it's it's heartbreaking to to, to hear the thing, and uh, it is amazing then to realize how far Savannah has progressed after what she's gone through. Now, this is a little bit of a longer uh, sound clip, but I think that uh, it it really sets the stage for the kind of challenges that uh, Savannah has faced. And uh, let's listen to Kevin's podcast, Schooled. Savannah's mom, Neverlyn Vargas, was already six months along before she realized she was pregnant with Savannah. She was 16 years old, living not far from where the family lives today. And then when I did find out, I didn't really want him. I, was, I wasn't just ready. Neverland was addicted to PCP at the time, 
and was actively hoping the drug would terminate the pregnancy. So I figured that me, kept, me keep smoking would end up killing her, but it didn't. When Neverland's mom found out she was pregnant, she made her go to the doctor. And when they did the ultrasound, they seen that the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck. So I went in for um, an early C-section. There were severe complications during the procedure, and both lives were at risk. Neverland technically died for almost 30 minutes, but in the end, both survived. Savannah was born on January 17, 1997, two months premature. I've been a fighter since birth. I weigh like four pounds, what, four ounces? Four pounds, four ounces. Savannah's father was 21 at the time, and for the first few years of her life, he sold drugs on the corners and was in and out of jail. He wasn't there for her first birthday. He wasn't there for a second. He came off for a third. Like, he was just in and out all the time. Neverland had another two kids with him, giving Savannah a younger brother and a baby sister. And from Savannah's perspective, some of her earliest memories are sunny. She thought of herself as a daddy's girl, the oldest kid in what seemed to her a happy family. We talked about those days while driving around her old neighborhood and how that vision quickly changed. So um, I was going up the stairs and I see him like hiding in the corner in the closet. And all I see is like this little like pipe thing and it was clear and it was black. Like it looked like it was burnt. Savannah was five. Her mom later told her her dad was using a crack pipe. So I told my mom that. And then my mom came and approached him. And then that was the first time I remember my dad getting locked up because he smacked me across my face when my mom had left to go to work. He hit her so hard, he left his handprint on her face. After he was released, though, Neverland took him back in. But the abuse only became worse. Let's see if I can speak through this. Okay. Um, My real father molested me when I was younger. Um, I didn't really have a childhood. I was in and out of court from the age 6 through 12 Savannah says it began when he would touch her inappropriately while her mother wasn't around. From there, the abuse escalated. Court records detail brutal accounts of the six-year-old suffering multiple rapes at the hands of her father. My father threatened to kill my mom if I said anything. He also silenced her with more physical abuse. Kevin, I, I know that's a little bit longer clip than what we normally have on on the, on the program, but I thought it was important that uh, our audience get to hear that description. That it, it just when I sat and I listened to that, as I said, first of all, it's heartbreaking, but secondly, then to think that uh, Savannah has overcome that and is an honor student and graduated high school. That's 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 right, Scott, and and you know from there. You know, in the piece, you learn that, uh, you know, she becomes pregnant, um, you know, after her mom gives her two condoms and says, here, here are two condoms, and whatever happens after this is your responsibility. Um, that's, what ha- that's what she said when her 14-year-old came to her and said, Mom, I, I think I might want to have sex with this guy up the street. And so she gets pregnant, and, um, you know, at that point, you know, she could be easily uh, a statistic. And her daughter being born when she was 15 really changed her life. And and I think she saw in her an opportunity to become her best self. And she took on that responsibility of being a mother. And uh, it's really spurred her forward. It's given her hope. It's given her optimism. It's given her drive. And that's a lot of what the story's about. But education is a, a big focus of this. Where does education come into the story? Where does the school come into the story? So, you know, I think what the the major theme of the podcast is, is that for a lot of kids, they just don't have uh, people they can rely on and count on in their home lives. And they're seeking that where they can, wherever they can find it. And schools are just that natural place, right? So when we, uh, when she, we find out she gets pregnant, it's her seventh grade teacher, John LaFrada, who... It's just a, a major source of uh, stability for her. Who urges her, "Hey, listen, this is going to be this is going to be tough, but you can do it." And like, look, you should start reading about motherhood and what it's going to mean to be a parent. And you know, she talks about how the library at her middle school becomes her her oasis, and she just is there, you know, reading books every day, trying to learn how can I be a good mother. She had the, you know, the foresight to say, "How can I do things differently 
honestly, than her own mom and the other people that she sees around her in her neighborhood. And then when she goes to high school, same thing. It's at a period where her mom, uh, you know, is in jail. She, she, was, she attempted, her mom smuggled, attempted to smuggle drugs into a state prison, was charged with a felony and spent time in, in, in a jail herself. And in that period, Savannah, you know, was living with her grandparents and trying to take care of her younger siblings. And she didn't have many people in her life she could count on, but she made relationships at school that were majorly important. And then unfortunately, through staffing turnover and some of the things we talked about before, uh, those supports were then taken away from her and she felt very, very lost. Um, so it's just, you know, examining those issues through her story, I think, I, I think helps people, helps me understand, you know, when we have these conversations about public schools and we talk about policy and funding and, and, and everything else, all these other issues, uh, th- this is where the rubber really hits the road, right? It's, it's the, the kids in our most distressed, our most, uh, you know, disadvantaged, needy schools, and, and what are we doing to help give them uh, a leg up and a chance that, you know, maybe they're not getting in their neighborhoods and in their home lives. Well, we only have about a minute left, Kevin. We want to thank you very much for being with us today. And we do have a link to School, the podcast, uh, on our website, WITF.org. Uh, Kevin, are there other stories you have planned that you can tell us about? Sure. So the second season of this will focus on an elementary school that um, a, a charter organization came in and, and tried to uh, revitalize. So I spent a year at that school, and we'll kind of examine that story and all the ins and outs of that, and I'll have that out in a, in a few months. Exactly the date un, uncertain at this point. But certainly this story is available now, iTunes, Stitcher, on our website, keystonecrossroads.org. So uh, thank you so much for giving the time, Scott. Kevin, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of the collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on Keystone Crossroads. It's supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Newark. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's Smart Talk, uh, well, we're going to be an investigation into pipelines. You probably have heard uh, Marie Cusick. Marie Cusick was one of the reporters on this story. But an investigation into pipelines and the agency on the federal level that uh, whose job it is to approve pipelines. There's a lot that uh, a lot of people don't know about FERC, this organization that... uh, is supposed to be deciding where a pipeline goes. Uh, They uh, approve the process, whether it's safe. And there are a lot of questions that come out of this report. So we will have Marie Cusick of uh, State Impact Pennsylvania and two other reporters joining us as well. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine.